Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Bhante Sanata Vihari Bhikkhu, a Theravada Buddhist monk from Los Angeles, California, currently enrolled in a Master's of Counseling, Psychology, Marriage, Family Therapist program. He also has a Bachelor's in Religion and was previously in the United States Air Force Reserve. He is currently working on continuing his teacher's work on Buddhism as psychotherapy and conducting meditation retreats in Mexico and Spain. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious psychoanalytic perspectives, politics, and poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n, dot com forward slash v a n e s s a two three c a r l your support is greatly appreciated for more information you can visit my website drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast website renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So I kind of just wanted to talk a little bit first about like the history between psychoanalysis and Buddhism. And I think like the first place that we can really see like a interesting kind of like dialogue is like uh, Carl Jung. So like Carl Jung really got into exploring like um, uh, Asian philosophies and ideas and religions, although he was very firm that he was going to stick to his own uh, like European style because he didn't think that, uh, you know, Europeans could basically become Asians or something like that, which is, I think there's a lot of truth in that. We can't like, we can't deny where we've come from and that's always going to be part of us and we can't try to become something totally different mm-hmm. at the same time. So actually, he wrote a lot of forewords to many like uh, Buddhist books during the 1930s. And he had dialogues with people like Alan Watts and uh, other uh, promoters of Buddhism in the West. And then later, there was Eric Fromm, who really like tried to get things to work between like Buddhism and psychoanalysis. Uh, He came in contact with like this famous uh, Zen writer named D.T. Suzuki. So D.T. Suzuki, for 20 years before he met Eric Fromm, he was trying to get in contact with many different um, people from uh, psychoanalysis, but they didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> I guess because of like, kind of like what like Freud said about, you know, the, the meditative experiences or the mystic experiences, kind of a form of like regression and stuff like that. So I guess that kind of like left some bad tastes, bad taste in some people's mouths. But uh, Eric Fromm was kind of like more open to it. So, like they became friends, uh, him and D.T. Suzuki. And they ended up holding a conference in Mexico uh, where I think it was about 50 different um, uh, uh, psychoanalysis showed up to uh, learn about Buddhism and talk about the the you know, the differences and the things that they have in common. Mm -hmm. So after that conference, they got together. I think it was in the 1960s. They they wrote a book together called uh, Zen Buddhism and Psychoanalysis, which was like a very influential book uh, for Buddhist people. So most of the Buddhist people that I know have read that book. So Mm. within like at least the Western Buddhist community, that's very, uh, that's become a very influential and popular book that people are still like referring to this day. 
so there, uh, at least in that respect, uh, there's been a big influence from psychoanalysis in, in Buddhism and especially in Western Buddhism. Uh, I would say from most of the Western uh, people that I've met that are into Buddhism, practice Buddhism or are Buddhist, uh, they seem to have some interest in psychoanalysis and they have some uh, understanding of it, even if it's just at a basic level. Um, and so then after that, in Sri Lanka, there was a very famous uh, uh, professor named Padmasiri de Silva. And uh, Padmasiri de Silva wrote two books on how to use or how to adapt Buddhism to like psychoanalysis or psychotherapy. And uh, they've also been very, very influential in, in Buddhist thought in Sri Lanka and uh, particularly in like Theravada Buddhism. Um, so within that time of Padmasiri de Silva writing these two books, my teacher, uh, Dr. Bhante Puniji, um, was also a friend of this uh, uh, Padmasiri, Dr. Padmasiri de Silva. And when, he, when my teacher came to the United States in the 1970s, he wanted to start a dialogue between the West and the East. And uh, when he told them about like the ideas of Buddhist psychology and how Buddhism, you know, was saying that you can completely eliminate all unwholesome states of mind forever. Uh, they laughed at him <laughs> at all these places that he went and interactions that he had. So they were laughing with him and, at him and he didn't really have anything to say because he didn't understand the western perspective so then he took it upon himself to kind of understand and uh why people were laughing why it seems so ridiculous to western people to say this so like his his way his uh, the door he took into western thinking was through psychoanalysis and particularly freud so like my my teacher he was really really like focused into freud uh he the other what happened to us is like, um, how that kind of direction split off after, after, after Freud and the different schools and teach mm -hmm. and, um, scholars. But, um, he really stuck to Freud because he saw like a lot of things that went together with like Buddhism and the initial, uh, um, things that psychoanalysis was saying about the human experience. So I think an important thing, to realize is that to, su to some extent, psychoanalysis and, uh, and Buddhism kind of start in the same place. And they start in the same place in the sense that they're relying on a form of like a introspection, uh, kind of re not relying on some like external objective mechanical view of the mind or behaviorism or some sort of like uh, uh, material spiritual duality. So I think because of like this kind of like foundation to both uh, methods, we see a lot of like similarities uh, uh, come out of it. And um, there's also similarity in the sense that the techniques that were kind of being employed. So in Buddhism, we have what's known as uh, mindfulness, which kind of is like, you you kind of like take a step back and try to take a more objective, non-judgmental kind of perspective of what's going on. And, um, you know, from like what I understand from Freud, when he was also like listening to his clients, he kind of took like this hovering attention kind of mode. It's very similar to, uh, to what we say in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, in mindfulness is really like dedicated towards ourself. Not, we don't really use mindfulness, uh, as a method to listen to others. Uh, but that's another similarity that both Buddhism and uh, uh, psychoanalysis uh, share, especially uh, Freud and Freud's technique that he would employ uh, with his clients or patients. So I think this kind of like, I almost want to say like phenomenological approach, introspective approach, mindful approach, uh, um, is something that really makes the conversation between uh, psychoanalysis and uh, and Buddhism um, easy, understandable, and uh, beneficial for, for for both sides. Yeah, and I feel like when people 
And not only, I think that's a great point about the, like Freud's even hovering attention is similar to this kind of mindfulness, but I feel like uh, what, what I've helped people develop like through the practice of psychoanalysis is that people end up getting like this distance from their like emotions or instincts or triggers or whatever these like patterns, interpersonal patterns that we're caught up in, you know, we react so immediately in these like autonomic, automatic ways um, that are so unconscious and we feel like we're just caught up in them all the time. We have no control. And I feel like after like a period of introspection where you're like looking at your patterns and eventually you begin to have like space from them to where you can, the more you can see them at play, the more you're uh, able to kind of take a step back like you described and kind of see it playing out without like in reacting in the way you used to react and being just caught up in it. And then that way you can like make new ways of reacting and interacting with yourself in the world instead of just being stuck in these old patterns. Yeah, so like what you said, it's basically what Buddhism is saying too in relation to how we deal with uh, emotions and thoughts and our behaviors and, you know, uh, things that come from the environment and, and stimulate us. So yeah, like the way you described it is it's the same way you see it in many like mindfulness and even some uh, Buddhist sutras, how it's described when, uh, the, what the point of mindfulness is, like how we're supposed to be using it and how it helps us in our everyday lives. Can we talk about these sutras? I'm about halfway through the book that you sent and I am <laughs> loving it and everything. I have all these notes written down. Oh yeah, look at this, look at this, look at this. It's like, there are so many similarities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, can you talk about the different sutras or some of them? Yeah, so like in the book, my teacher points out like the first discourse that the Buddha gave called uh, the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, which means like um, the spinning of the wheel of Dharma. So that's like the initial kind of teaching that the Buddha gave. And in the beginning, right in this, in like in the beginning of this sutra, it's, it's, it's very important and it's very interesting how like this sutta, I think more than other discourses, really kind of like has a lot that, that, that psychoanalysis and Buddhism can, can talk about in, in this particular one, right, right off in the beginning. So uh, Prince Siddhartha, who we know as the Buddha, uh, he grew up in a life of luxury. And after 30 years of living in luxury, uh, he gave it all up and started practicing uh, extreme asceticism, denying himself all pleasures and uh, trying to eliminate all unwholesome actions and karma that he had done in the past through punishing himself. Because that was like the idea in those days. They thought that was the way to get rid of the pleasure right? and to get rid of uh, your sins or bad karma. But that didn't work out. So what the Buddha ended up finding was uh, the middle way. Uh, so when we talk about Buddhism, we're talking about the middle way. So if we like kind of analyze this through like a psychoanalytic perspective, the Buddha says that we cannot escape our suffering or the human condition through the pursuit of pleasures. So we can kind of relate this to like the id or the pleasure principle. So people uh, are, some people are just completely dominated by seeking pleasure. And um, as we all know, a pleasure can bring us a lot of problems in this life, cause more problems than actually satisfy them. So that's not the way we should go about it. There's no way that we can overcome our problems in this life, or as Buddhism says in, other, in, in next lives, uh, by just following blindly uh, this pleasure principle as a way of life, as a philosophy, as a like hedonistic way of living your life. And then the Buddha, or Prince Siddhartha, uh, gave that up as a prince, and he started torturing himself and denying himself and uh, doing all sorts of asceticisms to try to reach liberation, which we can kind of relate to like, uh, kind of like this kind of like super, like the super ego, that judgmental part that's telling you like, Oh, this is not good. You know, you shouldn't give in to all these things uh, that the id wants to do. But he realized that didn't work either. Like completely cutting yourself off from all pleasure is not also the, it's, it's not also a healthy way to live. So the Buddha wasn't for, just following pleasure. And he wasn't also for just like denying yourself pleasure or even inflicting pain on yourself. So there was a, a middle way. 
And this middle way that the Buddha proposed was being in accordance with reality. So many times you hear Buddhists say like, oh, Buddhism is just about like accepting things as they are. So this accepting things as they are, we can kind of relate it to like the ego or the reality principle, uh, trying to be in, 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 in resonance or in harmony with reality. So we can see right here in the Buddha's like first discourse where he kind of, he kind of says like, it is the ego. It is this reality principle that, that should be in charge of the other two of the, of the super ego and of the, and of the id. And this is kind of like what Freud was saying. And then later on, I mean, it's very interesting how, how like a, how it said uh, that the ego where the id is the, or the ego should take place of the id. I forget exactly how that said. Mm -hmm. Where it is, uh, ego shall be. Yes, yes. So that's kind of like what the Buddha is saying. And another interesting dimension here is that, um, you know, from what I understand from what Freud taught, he described the id kind of like a mechanical process or like an instinct. It's not something that, you know, you're doing actively. So in a similar way, there's something within this pleasure principle in Buddhism following pleasures, which is called tanha or trishna in Sanskrit and Pali. And it's usually translated as desire, but it literally means thirst. And thirst, like the id, which is like a neutral word or a mechanical word, um, uh, is something that's happening to us. We don't choose it. So here, both in Buddhism and in psychoanalysis, we can see this kind of like mechanical process happening uh, that is causing our causing the problems in this world and, and, and for us. So there's like another very interesting um, place where, where psychoanalysis and Buddhism kind of like meet up um, with this kind of like it and, and Tanha or Trishna being the source or the energy that's driving us. So in Buddhism, it is this thirst, this desire that drives people from life to life. And in kind of like psychoanalysis, uh, I believe Freud was saying kind of the same thing with the id, that the id or the libido was the one who was giving energy, which the life force, the psychic energy to keep going. So there's like another interesting parallel uh, between the two also. And um, let's see what else. I don't know if you had any, you say you wrote a lot of things in the book. Maybe you have some questions about yeah. those. Yeah. Well, that idea of like drive or desire. Yeah. That's like the driving force. And it's also kind of insatiable. Like you just like keep, you keep wanting to drive, uh, keep wanting to go. And they said something about, there was even a part where he talked about like the death drive, like the people are driven to like stop being, which I thought was interesting as well. It was like a drive towards life, but there's also this kind of drive towards like not being anymore. Oh yeah. So this drive towards not being. So within this, within this mechanical process of thirst, of desire, of Trishna, there's three parts to it. So sometimes when people hear about Buddhism and says, oh, you can't have any desires, so you have to get rid of your desires. That's a bad translation or misunderstanding of what, Trishna is. So the Buddha didn't say that all desires are bad because there's the desire for awakening, the desire for liberation, the desire for the end of suffering. So in this first discourse that the Buddha gave, um, he's, he's very exact what he means about thirst. So he says thirst for pleasure, sensual pleasures, thirst for being or existence, and thirst for non-being. And here non-being means uh, an aversion towards unpleasant situations. So this non-being, this death drive is a result of um, suffering. So when there's too much suffering in this world, some people uh, try to escape the suffering uh, through, you know, self-annihilation. Mm -hmm. So within the Buddhist context, uh, this non-being, this death drive is, is, a, is a reaction uh, to all the suffering and all the pain all the sorrows and afflictions in this world. So it is these three kinds of uh, 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 drives within, within, the, within desires, these three types of desires that are really keeping the mind going from moment to moment and from life to life in, uh, within the Buddhist perspective.
That makes a lot of sense too, because you know, like when people are in really like difficult or traumatic situations, sometimes we kind of like freeze, you know, it's like just like let it pass or let it happen, and and just kind of yeah, like deny ourselves just to like kind of get through it. So it makes sense that like the suffering or the difficulty could cause us to kind of become inert in those moments. I think that could be a coping mechanism in some way. Sometimes then people end up relying on too much and then they become like too self-annihilating. Yeah, I mean, uh, within the spiritual community and in, 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 in Buddhism, we see it, we see it also like uh, there's like spiritual bypassing. So, and, and instead of like really dealing uh, with the issues, the people retreat from it. They retreat from whatever they have to deal with and, they try to cover it up with some sort of like, uh, I don't know, spiritual righteousness to kind of justify their, their retreat from not facing the actual circumstances. And they kind of use spirituality as some sort of like uh, pleasurable experience uh, to run away from what's actually happening in their life. Yeah, that was something that uh, your teacher talked about in the book a lot as well as like the difference between kind of looking at like what, what the teacher, the Buddha was teaching originally versus like ha what had become kind of in more modern day where they had turned they had turned into this like sort of dogmatic structure so some Buddhist sections that were more like religious and just like exalting the Buddha as, a, as another god just like a lot of other religions instead of like having it be more philosophical or psychological spiritual practice yeah I mean uh I think that ha that happens to like, I think that ha that's a, like a tendency that humans have. Like, you know, I realized like after like my father passed away that like these people started telling stories about my father that, you know, I can't ever recall or the stories became exaggerated and or people only re only focus like on the good parts or the parts that they liked. So I can only imagine what happens to with like, with like the Buddha after 2,600 years of him passing away, you know, all the kinds of stories or rituals or practices that people began to focus on because it made them feel good about themselves uh after that passing away so i mean i think it's how we view people after they pass away or that saying don't speak ill about the dead i, I think that that's a very powerful idea that happens and it leads to kind of like dogmatic thinking and and um and other kind of like things that are not very useful later within the system and yeah. uh but even having the psychoanalysis with Freud or like Lacan, like, you know, Lacan's whole idea was like to disrupt all of these systems all the time and like get out of these kind of dogmatic ways of thinking. And then people have turned his, his talks about that into like a dogma anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I remember on the um, one episode when you were talking about the new Freud show, like how a lot of psychoanalysts were getting upset of how they, how they were portraying uh freud and they, you know people kind of want to make them into idols and worship them as gods and and if you don't play nice then you're not a real a real freudian or psychoanalysis yeah totally um would you talk a little bit more about you i know we're talking about this like psychologically a lot because i'm a psychoanalyst but i'm really interested to hear also in like this idea of like how it moves from life to life or how we move from life to life and what that looks like Okay, metaphysics it is then. Uh, so uh, here again, I mean, we can still relate this to uh, psychoanalysis. So there's a concept, I think, within psychoanalysis called, uh, especially Freud, uh, psychic determinism. So this kind of idea of a psychic determinism is also there within Buddhism. And it's, it, it's this mechanism that keeps us going from existence to existence uh, or being to being so this uh this uh kind of like psychic determinism or dependent origination which is usually translated in uh, it's a translation of the poly into English, is what keeps people going from moment to moment and from life to life so the buddha ne uh, never directly uh, spoke about like reincarnation because the Buddha denied uh, an ultimate essential self that doesn't change, an atma or soul. So what the Buddha spoke was of re-existing. So re-existing is a process that happens every moment. So every moment 
our experience is changing it's not the same and nothing from the, uh the one moment from what to the next moment there isn't one particular thing that is carried on a hundred percent from one moment to the next so what when we talk about like rebirth as we usually think about it like you die as a human being that you're reborn in another state uh all we're really saying in buddhism is that this same process of change that's happening moment by moment continues uh to the next from the next life because uh at least according to Buddhism, there's no, there's no necessity to believe that uh, a continuous activity will just quit all of a sudden. Uh, uh, kind of Buddhism kind of has this kind of like idea of like um, energy being continuous and, and not being able to be destroyed and the conservation of energy. So that kind of plays out within the psychic realm or the mental realm in Buddhism. So to Buddhists, it just makes sense, you know, like there's this thing that's going on and uh, it's just going to keep going on from moment to moment. Uh, so that's really like the important thing within Buddhism. This kind of idea is called Paticca Samuppada, as I said earlier, dependent origination. Oh, it's a form of psychic determinism, psychic, because it has to do with the mind, basically. And determinism is because it relies on conditions. So in Buddhism, this idea of dependent origination is really... Um, talking about uh, conditions, uh, the causes and conditions, and causes and conditions lead to a moment, or moments not even correct, but an experience. And uh, that experience is a condition for the next experience, and it just keeps going and going and going and going mm -hmm. until we can remove this thirst, this uh, pleasure principle, this uh, desire. And once we remove this link within this chain of dependent origination, uh, we can break the sequence of determinism and be free uh, from all the suffering in the world. And that's what's usually called awakening or nirvana. Very interesting. And that's interesting as well, because that uh, phrase that you brought up where it was, uh, where the id is, the ego will be, shall be. Um, when they retranslated for it recently, um, because some people had said that he was originally translated like, they were trying to be like too scientific when they started psychoanalysis and trying to make it like much more of a science because they were trying to get rid of the idea of the soul and, you know, trying to get away from ideas of the church and these kinds of things. Um, so they had like created these ideas of like the ego and the super ego and the end tried to make them sound like these scientific mechanisms. But when they retranslated the original German recent, in recent years, they said that what he actually says uh, is where it was, I shall become. Mm. That's so, very interesting. Yeah, it's like this constant state of perpetual becoming. And, and within the Buddhist perspective, that is the default. There's a constant state of being that's been going on basically since infinity and will continue going on until infinity unless we do something about it. I love it. How did you how did you find your way into this in the first place? <laughs> into in, into into what Buddhism or psychoanalysis or yeah everything? all of it. Ah, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, um, I don't know. I guess it was in high school. Like when I was in high school, for some weird reason, like I don't know. I I still haven't figured out exactly why it happened. I have some suspicions, but uh, um the last two years of high school, like I had this weird kind of feeling of like going to sleep that I wouldn't wake up. And I, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a fear of death. It wasn't really that, but, uh, because I used, I was very reckless and I would put myself in dangerous situations all the time, uh, at, at that age. But, uh, I don't know. It was something about like not existing. That's what, that was like the fear of not to exist. And like, I would cease existing. And that kind of like fear that I had, or it was kind of like an existential crisis that I had as a teenager, mm -hmm. gave me a lot of time to think. Like I really reflected a lot. And since I didn't want to go to sleep, I would just lay in bed for three, four, five hours, sometimes not sleep at all and just think all night, just try to figure it out. Like what's going on, what's happening. And that led me to get into philosophy and spirituality, religion and psychology. And I just started like reading everything that I could get my hands on. And uh, I think that was like kind of like where I saw like the door open to a new way of seeing the world or being. 
and but I wasn't mature enough to like really do anything about it uh, at that point. I was very caught up in the way things are in the city and for young people. And the, I, I grew up in Hollywood and I went to Hollywood High School. So, you know, it's like a, it's another world out there. It's a completely different world, I think, from uh, the rest of the United States. Um, so, yeah. So then, like, I think when I became like 25 or 26, I realized that, like, you know, having the nice car and the beautiful partner and I don't know, being popular and going out every night and, you know, f get, getting all the pleasure that I can in life wasn't going to satisfy me. So I just kind of like went back to where I was as a teenager um, to ground zero and just kind of like started looking at everything all over again. And uh, during that time, I really focused on like meditation um, but not only like formal sitting meditation, but like contemplative thinking and yoga and martial arts and sing meditation and Buddhist meditation, Hindu meditation. So a lot of introspection. And sometimes I would just like sit there doing nothing and just like see what's happening in my mind and observe mm -hmm. it without no formal meditation technique or even trying to meditate, just trying to step out of what's going on out there. So this kind of like led me to like Buddhism eventually after I tried many things and I really saw a change in my behavior from practicing introspection. I was able to, as you were saying, it creates that space. I think that's the most important thing because mm -hmm. we're stuck in, in these patterns and these patterns in the past were like our tools to like overcome our problems or to help us deal with these problems. And we never really analyzed them. We just kind of like fell into these patterns. And by creating the space, I was able to see like, wait a minute, like these, these strategies, these patterns aren't working for any, for me anymore. And not only are they not working for me, like they're harming me. They're making my life worse. Like at least in the past, they gave me something, but now they're not really giving me anything. They're wasting my time, my money, my energy. They're hurting me and the people around me. So through, through this practice of introspection, I was able to see like, how things were triggering me and how I had these patterns and how I had these uh, preconceptions of who was, what was my role? Who was I supposed to be? And creating this distance between all these patterns and beliefs that I had was really what gave me the opportunity to break out of them and, and kind of like do what I'm doing now. Yeah, that is so true. That's so great to hear because it's like you did your own self analysis by just giving time to yourself to focus on yourself and, and, and introspection. And I feel like I, I say that and I see that all the time. It's like these patterns that we developed at some point were really adaptive and good for us and we developed them for a reason. So I think other also other theories that like try to make it like something that you're doing is a sickness or, you know, like you just have to cut it out or take a medication and get rid of it. That doesn't help either because it, it's not a sickness. It's something that was adaptive at some point, like it serves a purpose, but it's just not something you need in your life anymore. It's not serving you anymore. You might be in a different environment. Like maybe that was helpful when you were with your parents and young and didn't have any other ways to cope but like now that you're in a different part of your life it's not useful anymore and just recognizing that instead of like beating yourself up about it just like recognizing that and being like okay that was helpful but now we need a different way of being yeah and you know that's the interesting thing about like buddhism also like the buddha never pathologized people and he actually discouraged people feeling guilty about things that they did in the past so there was this mass murderer who like had to collect a thousand fingers and, and the Buddha wanted to help him. And it, people were calling that murder a monster and they thought he was inhuman and they wanted to kill him. So the, actually the king got his army ready to go to the forest and kill him. So the Buddha wanted to save him. And uh, when the Buddha was walking, uh, this Angulimala was chasing him and he couldn't catch the Buddha for some reason. So then Angulimala screamed out to him, monk, stop. You have to stop, monk. And then the monk, uh, uh, the Buddha kept walking and he said, I already stopped. So then the Angulimala got confused and he says, you know, you're a religious person. He shouted out, you're not supposed to lie like religious people can't lie. Why have you said that you stop when you keep walking? And then the Buddha said, I already stopped hurting and killing others, uh, but you haven't. You're still killing others. So when he said this to Angulimala, I kind of gave him a moment to like reflect on what he was doing. 
and it helped him overcome his current state. And uh, the Buddha accepted him as his disciple and he ordained him. And then later on, when people would, when Angulimala would go into the village to get alms, uh, many people would abuse him, say bad words to him. They would hurt him. And then he would kind of like beat himself up over it. Oh, I deserve this. I was a bad person. I killed. And the Buddha would come up to him and say like, no, all of that's in the past. Like, you don't have to feel guilty. You've already overcame that. Like, you're living a new life. You are the person who you are now. You're not the person who you were in the past. And uh, the Buddha doesn't completely deny like what happened in the past. So he would tell Angulimala like, oh, you know, these people are abusing you because what you did in the past. So that's your past karma that you have to kind of like take, but you don't have to beat yourself up over the karma. Like that's an extra step. And that's the extra step that Buddhism is always trying to eliminate. So like the physical pain or whatever happens out there, that's just part of life. But this extra level, this, this extra layer of suffering that we add to our lives that we say, I hate myself. I'm not good enough. I'm a sad person. I'm an angry person. I'm blah, 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 blah. All that is the part that we have to get rid of. And that's the part like, which is really important to Buddhism to get rid of all this, like affliction, all the whole mental part is what the Buddha is saying that we can, we can't escape limitations of the pain, everything else, this body, we can free ourselves from like the mental things that are, that are, that happen to us. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that would be like the neurosis that Freud's talking about. It's just like, this layer of this like whole conversation we have with ourselves where we're beating ourselves up or just like reenacting the same patterns over and over without, without thinking, without stopping. It's just like becomes this automatic flagellation. Yeah. And that, that goes back to like, at least in Buddhism to this thing called, um, um, kind of has to deal with like the super ego right? Like right there, we see ourselves like, oh, no, I'm not conforming to whatever ideas of society or my family or, or what I thought I was supposed to be. So you kind of like beat yourself up over that. But in this first discourse of the Buddha, we see that the Buddha rejects this. He rejects like self-mortification. And he says, no, that's not the way to do it. Like self-mortification is not good. And also like denying everything and just going into pleasures is also not good. You have to be in line with reality. Yeah, that's a really good point as well, because I, I feel like let's talk about that a little, because I feel like so many of individuals' problems are like these things that we've internalized from society. And you talking about like growing up in Hollywood and Hollywood High, it's like, that's like you said, it's like the epitome of like that kind of really like materialistic ideal that everybody's kind of setting themselves up against and everybody has that so internalized at least in the states and a lot in the west like i'm in sweden now even though i'm from the states but like the swedes have uh, identified a lot with these american kind of values as well because the the u.s puts out so much media like all the films you know all these tv shows netflix and all these things like everybody's watching that all over the world you know <laughs> it's like yeah. it's all over the western world um so it's really like that these american ideals have really like infiltrated like a lot of different places at this point and then you know everybody measuring themselves up against that and not measuring up and beating ourselves up and trying to fit into these boxes that just are totally constructed Oh, it's just causing so many problems. Yeah. So here's like another interesting segue I can, I can use to like talk about Buddhism and psychoanalysis. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, like this kind of like uh, id or this kind of like pleasure uh, uh, principle or at, at, at least unwholesome things or unwholesome states in, in, in psychoanalysis are kind of seen like a, like instinctual or drives. Yeah. They are, they generate, they are generated from the inside. Is that the case? Mm -hmm. So here's like a distinction between uh, Buddhism and psychoanalysis. So the Buddha said that the mind in its natural state is free from all contaminants and is pure and bright, so, and, but only becomes contaminated or perturbed due to external stimulus. And he calls these asavas, influences or influxes. And one of the influxes that perturbs the mind and contaminates it is called diti asava. Diti is like ideas or perspective or philosophies. So I think that's like one of the big things that's causing the turmoil in people's minds and, and all these problems in the world right now is this, this kind of like materialistic Hollywood, you know, 
kind of uh, Facebook, mm-hmm. uh, narcissistic ideal. It, it's causing so much suffering in the world. This influence from the outside is really what's contaminating uh, the mind. So there's other kinds of influences that the Buddha talked about too. But I think right now, just because because of technology, the way the world is working, I think that this uh, philosophical or point of view influences probably the most powerful one right now that's really causing so much turmoil. And I think it's unfortunate, like how women are disproportionately like the victims of this kind of thing. You know, the, the ideals for women are, are, are a lot more strict and they're pushed stronger and uh, it, it leads to, you know, all kinds of problems with body image or, you know, popularity and all kinds of things. I have, a, I have a teenage sister and I mean, I see it all the time. Like and I try to help her out, but <laughs> teenagers are teenagers and they're just going to do their own thing. But uh, yeah, I think this kind of like this whole idea, Hollywood, American Hollywood narrative is, is really a source of a lot of suffering around the world. Yeah, and uh, it's a really interesting point, too, because there's this shift, um, like Freud talked about it, like, yeah, that these were things were coming for our instincts. And it's like from his generation, like over 100 years ago, these people were going through this um, period where they were like trying to separate themselves from like their animal nature, like they had this like negative view of like, you know, the animal part of ourselves and, you know, didn't understand people in other countries and cultures that they felt were more, you know, they saw them as more primitive, uh, though, of course, that's not the case. Um, But they were really like, terrified of this like animal nature they had of like, this kind of idea of us having even these instincts that could control us. Um, whereas like what you're saying, I think is really like, and like Lacan, who's, you know, working much later than Freud, you know, and the, and the postmodernists and all these kinds of philosophers, you know, st- took a shift to like more the idea that like it's language and this kind of like societal constructs that are being imposed upon us that are the things that are kind of deforming our mentalities and that, you know, more probably if we were more in line with our kind of natural part of ourselves, we wouldn't be having so much of these kinds of problems and suffering. Definitely, definitely. So uh, in regards to like uh, Freud's idea of sublimation and and what the Buddha proposes to do about this uh, problem. So... uh, I guess the the thing with sublimation was to find a way that is acceptable to, you know, express whatever you're feeling or doing without being like, you know, judged by society or being punished by it. Um, um, But that doesn't really solve the problem, right? You're just kind of (laughs) like, you're always going to have that thing inside of you that's telling you to do these things. And the, the best you can do is try to like mitigate it and try to express it in a way that's acceptable. Um, so here, like, uh, what the Buddha is saying is like, no, there's another option available to us, which is to, uh, pacify or calm or completely stabilize, um, uh, the id. So there is a way that, that, that this, uh, seeking of pleasure or these, these emotions can be, um, completely pacified forever. And we don't have to not, uh, only be limited to kind of like being in this constant conflict to express ourselves, but also to not be, not get in trouble or feel bad about what we're doing. That um, there's also a, a technique that we can use to reduce and completely eliminate um, this thing that's pushing us and driving us from life to life, this desire, this thirst, this seeking of pleasure and this uh, aversion of pain through this systematic uh, uh, introspection where you begin to uh, depersonalize uh, uh, everything that the normal person considers the self. And here's like another, this leads to like another different idea. Uh, so in the structural hypothesis, um, there's the three parts, the, the, the id, the ego and the super ego. But what Buddhism does is they add a, another part, which is like no self. So another part that we have to understand is no self that all experiences are impersonal due to the fact that they're always changing and that that's always changing is changing in a way which we don't have any control of and it's changing in a way that we don't like it. 
And if something is always changing and we're, we can't control it and it's changing in such a way that we don't like it, how can we say that it's truly mine or it belongs to me or it is myself or I'm that? If it's just happening, if it's just a mechanical process, if it's something that's out of our control, how, why should we identify with it? So here we create like a big space, not only like in mindfulness where we have that space not to react, but we create like a, a space between all phenomena and awareness. And once you get to that level, the mind is uh, unperturbed. In Buddhism, we call this akupa cetto vimutti, the unperturbable serenity of mind, where uh, although one experiences different kinds of uh, situations and, ex and experiences in this life, uh, the mind is no longer shaken by them. So this is like the ultimate uh, mental health where it, the mind no longer becomes contaminated due to, the, due to being completely aware, being completely in line with reality. Uh, there is no difference between external or internal or mine or theirs. Uh, there's a complete uh, harmony uh, with the way things are. And that's the solution in Buddhism, at least to overcome all these problems, not only in this life, but in, in from future lives, past lives, and for the whole world. I love that. And um, yeah, this is interesting too, because when you get to like what Khan's thought, because we talked about earlier, it's in the book too, of like the idea of like the ego is kind of the middle way. But then there's this other part where, like you're saying, like, but we also can't be identified with the ego because that's not really us either, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, uh, in Lacan's thought, he talks about how the ego is like our basic kind of foundational symptom structure. And that it's just what's what developed when we were really, really small, like like uh, like your teacher talks about in the book, like you know we have all these senses, sensations happening and perceptions of the outside and our internal experience, and you know our mind is just experiencing so many different sensations, and it makes sense of things, and like the way that it started making sense of things it becomes this kind of ego that we become like identified with if we think that's us, but it's not really us either. So it's like kind of being able to see like, okay, this is this basic structure that my mind developed for me to just like function in this material reality world or whatever, but it's not really me either. So still being able to like observe it and feel what it's feeling, but not feeling like it's totally like happening to you or being like angry when things happen to you or don't happen to you, et cetera. Yeah, because this ego, this self that we have is constructed and we weren't born with it. I mean, you know, since you're born, they tell you, oh, your name is this, and they give you all these ideas. So it's, it's this thing that we think is ours is really all these ideas that came from the outside. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't belong to us. It's all just things that people have told us. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Bante. Sanata Vihare Bhikkhu, a Theravada Buddhist monk from Los Angeles, California. For more, please visit the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org, or the text accompanying this episode, including a link for a free download of the book we are referencing on Buddhism and psychoanalysis. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. And now the song Move On 23 by myself 
and Carl Abrahamson from the new compilation released by Somber Sonics Transcend, Transmute, Create available on Bandcamp. stellar magic, grimoires, and a unique series of ink images by Frederick Soderberry. The Fenris Wolf, issue number 5, 2012. Peorage, Levee, On Topics and Neurology, Mega Golem, French author, The Great Beast, 666. Psychosexual Surrealism of Hans Balmer, Healing, Death, The Extraterrestrial Origins of Language, Ernst Jünger's Psychedelic Approaches, Recent Satanic Cinema, The Occult Potential of Contemporary Physics, Babylon as a Magical Formula, The Mystical Art, and a Never-Before-Published Poem, 